0: This podcast contains coarse language, dark humor, descriptions of violence, and controversial opinions. Listener discretion is advised. I see you're back for another last meal. Or is this your first one? Either way, please do me a favor and show me some love on whatever platform you found me on. Ratings and reviews go a long way, and I love reading comments on Rumble. Catch me and my Canadian hot dog live on either Thursday or Friday nights talking about recent crime news. He likes to bitch that I need to stick to a schedule, but my life is a disaster. I'll stream when I feel like it. Much love to all of you. I've driven through New Mexico before, on my way to Texas when I was a kid. I don't remember a whole lot about that trip, but... My stepdad's mom also used to run a carnival somewhere near Albuquerque around the same time. She's old now. Might not even be with us anymore. But I have a few fond memories of riding some of the rides and playing games there. I hate to sound like a biased right-winger, but New Mexico is kind of a shithole. Like, in this instance, the old Mexico was probably a lot better. I'm allowed to say that because I'm also from a desert wasteland. Tourists think they're great for some reason, but getting sand in your underwear because you wanted to go outside really isn't an activity I enjoy. New Mexico is the southeast corner of the Four Corners Monument, and also a very blue state with very blue policies. Demographics may play a role in that. Don't want to make any assumptions and get called a racist, though. Their history with the death penalty is kind of strange, actually. Their very first execution was a triple-hanging of three white teamsters convicted of murder in 1851. Throughout the years, a total of 73 men and one woman have been put to death here, most of them being of Hispanic origin. Hanging was the primary method of execution before electrocution, and then after they realized how terrible that was, they built a gas chamber. Only one man has seen the inside of it, though. Since Furman vs. Georgia, only one man has been executed by the state of New Mexico, and he met his end with the help of a lethal injection. He was the last person to be put down before New Mexico abolished capital punishment in 2009. This decision would not be retroactive, though, and it would take another 10 years to vacate the death sentences of the last two men on death row. So grab a cactus peeler and a water bottle. Today we're headed right around the corner of my home state, to the land of enchantment. And meth. Yep, New Mexico is very methed up. Gonna fuck a lot of names up in this one too, so be prepared to laugh. If you know anything about American history, you know that Texas is the only state that is legally allowed to secede from the U.S. I might get more into that when we finally get to Texas, but for now, just keep in mind that the United States fought a pretty bloody war with Mexico to get these southern territories. New Mexico being one of them, obviously. Did you think we bought that chunk of land from France? This ain't Luzerana. Jose Doroteo Arango Arambula was born on June 5th, 1878, and would go on to play a key role in the Mexican Revolution. Stories about his early life vary depending on who you ask, but from what I gather, he was the oldest son of a sharecropper named Agustin Arango and a woman named Micaela Arambula. After his father died, Arango dropped out of school to help support his mother. He had many careers as a mule skinner, a sharecropper, a butcher, the list goes on. Basically, he did anything and everything he could to help his mother out. The young man moved out of Durango briefly at the age of 16, but returned to track down and murder the man who raped his sister. A noble deed, followed by the act of stealing a horse to escape. After arriving back in Durango, he made his living wandering around the hills and stealing. Eventually, Arango joined up with a group of bandits. He was arrested in 1898 for stealing a mule and a gun. Hell of a charge, for sure. Later in life, Arango would claim that his father was a bandit by the name of Agustin Villa. The man later changed his name to Francisco Pancho Villa. Scholars who have written about him have got on to say that the actual identity of his father is unknown. But I'm pretty sure he was just making shit up. The history on Villa is so long, he did a bunch of shit. He ended up becoming governor of Chihuahua in 1913. Like, I learned so much more about the Mexican revolution than I ever imagined I would just looking into this guy. And he's not even the guy getting the last meal here. If you wanna know everything he did, Google him, for real. Pancho Villa, an interesting motherfucker for sure. But, I'm going to skip ahead a bit, because as much as I like history, I don't want to bore anyone who came here for executions. On March 9th, 1916, General Villa commanded a hundred members of his revolutionary group to cross the U.S. border into the town of Columbus, New Mexico. The simplest answer is usually the correct answer, right? The military viewed Villa's raid as an attempt to get more supplies and military equipment, But some more conspiracy-minded people believed that it was retaliation for the U.S. selling VIA defective cartridges. After getting across the border, VIA's men attacked a detachment of the 13th Cavalry Regiment. They burned the town of Columbus before making off with mules, horses, and military supplies. During this raid, 18 Americans were killed. Most of VIA's men were also killed during the Battle of Columbus. Of the few remaining revolutionaries, seven men were captured and tried for their crimes. One lucky bastard walked away with his life, but the other six were sentenced to hang. Juan Sanchez and Francisco Alvarez were executed by hanging on June 9, 1916. Eusebio Renteria, Tarino Garcia, Jose Rangel and Juan Castillo were executed by hanging on June 30th, 1916. I chose this case because... And this is gonna sound ridiculous, but it made me laugh. Their occupations are all listed as Mexican Bandit, and that's fucking hilarious to me. Desperate times call for desperate measures, I guess. The 63 men in Villa's group, plus all their horses who perished in the Battle of Columbus, were dragged out past the stockyards before being soaked in kerosene and set on fire. The U.S. government decided to go after Villa and search for him for six months before giving up. Francisco Pancho Villa was executed by gunshot on July twentieth, 1923. As he and his bodyguards were being driven into the city of Parral, a man selling pumpkin seeds called out, Viva Villa! and seven riflemen came out of hiding and fired 40 shots into the car. Only one bodyguard survived this ambush. While this isn't necessarily a government-ordered execution, I still thought it was important to include it. Villa's car is on display at the Historical Museum of the Mexican Revolution in Chihuahua. The last case of hitchhiking gone wrong that I can remember was all the way back in Minnesota. Yeah, I know, not that long ago. But the crime isn't what struck me with this one. Many states I've covered so far have had some abstract theme that loosely ties all their executed people together. New Mexico's just so happens to be really hilarious occupation titles. In October of 1951, an Ohio man named John Gunnish decided to make his way to California to secure work for himself and start building a life. John passed through Springfield, Missouri and noticed a hitchhiker on the side of the road. The 27-year-old man he picked up told him that he was heading west to California. John agreed to let him come along, if he agreed to pay for some of the expenses. The trip went just fine until their engine overheated in Texas. A minor setback. After handling that, the pair continued on through New Mexico. When they reached Quay County, they decided to park for the night and get some sleep. About 300 feet off of Highway 66, the men set up camp for the night. On the afternoon of October 12th, the body of a man was found near Highway 66. He was mostly clothed, but missing his shoes. He'd been dragged about 10 feet off the paved highway and rested in the dirt. There was no identification on him aside from a handkerchief with the letter J on it. The man's shirt was bloody, his pockets had been turned inside out, and a can that had been used to carry water was found near him, along with a pillow. This can was later identified by a garage attendant in Texas as belonging to two men he'd seen before when they came in with an overheated engine. Forensics in the 50s weren't the best, obviously, but they were a hell of a lot better than in the 1800s. When the pillow found near the body was examined, they found lead from a 22 caliber bullet. During the autopsy, bullet fragments were found in the man's fingers. He'd been shot a total of five times, all in the face. He had no burns or powder marks, which indicated he'd been shot from a distance. Three bullets were found inside the skull. Five days after the man's body was recovered, his car was found in Amarillo, Texas. The 1936 Plymouth was found to have multiple bloodstains throughout it. As I just said, forensics really weren't that great back in the 50s. They had no smoking gun to link to a suspect. What they did have was a pocket novel titled, They Can't All Be Guilty. Ironic as fuck, because the man whose fingerprints were found on it was, in fact, very guilty. Police formally identified their suspect and issued a pickup order for him. He was found in Aden, California on November 1st. The man had registered at a hotel and had begun working under the name John Gunnish. After he was arrested, he admitted that he'd robbed the man he'd shot and used the money to gamble in Reno, Nevada. While there, he pawned a watch and the gun he'd used in the shooting. In case you haven't figured this out yet, the man they arrested was not John Gunnish. In fact, He was an army deserter by the name of Frederick Heisler. That's his job title. Army deserter. How fucking hilarious is that? Heisler claimed that he'd shot John in self-defense on the second night of their trip. He said that he woke up during the night to find John rifling through his suitcase. When confronted about what he was doing, John allegedly swung at him and Heisler struck back. They continued fighting in the back seat until Heisler got hold of the gun and shot John in the face. This seems almost like it could be plausible, right? A good Samaritan picks up a hitchhiker with the intent to rob him and the hitchhiker shoots in self-defense? Yeah, seems like a fine defense until you look at the ballistics. John had been shot in the face five times while leaned back in a reclined position, likely asleep in the back seat of his own car. All of these shots were fired from the same angle. No way in hell that someone wrestling with a man inside a car can fire five shots in the same direction from a distance. The jury didn't buy his story at all. The lesson here is, don't take the stand in your own defense. Frederick Heisler was executed by electrocution on October 29, 1954. Y'all know by now how I feel about the electric chair. It's cruel and unusual. In this case, what's more cruel and unusual was what the witnesses had to see. After the first surge of electricity went through Heisler's body, the curtain being held up around him was dropped. Everyone watching had to see a still-alive, partially-fried Frederick Heisler for a brief moment before they raised the curtain back up and zapped him again. His last meal is unavailable due to the time period, but his last words to the priests surrounding him were, don't let them do it. Don't y'all just love it when I cram similar stories into the same episode? It's as if there's nothing better to do in a desert wasteland than hitchhike and shoot people to death. Must be something about that heat. New Mexico doesn't really have a lot of variety in their condemned men, I guess, which I find very odd considering a handful of more recent cases have been far more brutal than anything from the time Capital Punishment was a thing. Oh, and this one has yet another great occupation title. His job is listed as parolee because you get paid for that, I guess. Ralph Rainey was living in California in 1956, but decided to take a trip to Arvada, Colorado. He was expected to arrive on January 10th. The day he was supposed to arrive in Colorado, police in New Mexico found a body just off Highway 66. The unidentified man's head had been smashed in, and his skull also had a small round hole right above the right temple. The man's face, as well as some nearby rocks, were covered in blood. After an inquest was held, Jack Rainey identified the man as his father, Ralph. His cause of death was two gunshots to the head. Ralph's car would later be found between Wendover and Grantsville in Tooele County, Utah. Try spelling that one, you non-Utah motherfuckers. License plates for the car would be found hidden nearby. After a brief inspection, police found bloodstains and a hole in the back of the passenger seat of the car. Many of Ralph's belongings were also found. Much like our last case, there wasn't really a smoking gun until they found a Kleenex box and sent it off to be fingerprinted. The guilty party in this case managed to run around for a couple weeks before he was caught. He made his way into Nevada, where he was arrested for reckless driving. The man tried to bribe the arresting officer, and when that didn't work, he somehow escaped. He fled the scene in a Buick he'd been driving. Somewhere in the Nevada desert, he crashed the car and ran off, leaving behind a box of Ralph's clothes and a brown leather bag. The next day in Calienta, Nevada, the man was arrested again. He pulled the classic, I don't remember anything about the last two weeks card. He claimed that he was walking along a highway in Santa Rosa, New Mexico, when he stumbled across an abandoned Buick and drove it to Nevada. Ralph Rainey made a mistake that many people used to make during this time period. He picked up a hitchhiker, probably just trying to do a good deed and help a man out with a ride. He had no idea that David Nelson was going to rob and kill him. Nelson hadn't killed any of the other people who had helped him out. Noel Adams had driven him from California to Arizona. June Patrick gave him gas money. Arthur Valde held onto his gun for him. All of these people made it out with their lives. Why was Ralph so unlucky? Nelson also claimed responsibility for the deaths of Kenneth Short and John Valente, but wasn't charged for these crimes. He tried an insanity defense, but was found guilty and sentenced to death. David Cooper Nelson was executed by Gas Chamber on August 11, 1960. After his second trial, yep, he got a second trial, and his confessions to his crimes were not allowed into evidence this time. Didn't matter, though. The jury, once again, found him guilty and sentenced him to die for the murder of Ralph Rainey. Nelson tried to escape from prison, but was unsuccessful. Amnesia, insanity, a third party actually holding the gun. He tried it all, but none of it worked. Nelson's last words were actually a couple different things. When asked if he had anything to say, he said, Okay, warden, God be with you. He told the prison chaplain that he was going home and his last meal was oyster stew. He also requested that two other prisoners receive special meals as well. Liberals and other idiots with bleeding hearts like to approach certain situations from a rehabilitation, not punishment point of view. This works with some things, like drug addiction, but for other things, there's only one cure. A three-drug cocktail. Or a bullet, I guess. Bullets are cheaper after all. On September 29, 1984, an unnamed 18-year-old woman was forced at gunpoint into a blue and white car, but she managed to escape. A little more than a week later, on October 7th, Cynthia Fernandez called the cops and explained that she'd seen a man in a blue and white car sitting outside her house. The man was staring through her window at her 11-year-old daughter. The very next day, on the 8th, a 6-year-old girl named Danita Welch was kidnapped by a man, in a blue and white car. While she was walking home from school. The man took her out onto a road near Roswell, raped her, and left her for dead. The suspect was eventually caught and identified as Terry Clark. The story should end here with a three-drug cocktail or a bullet, but it doesn't. Clark was let out on bond while awaiting an appeal in Danita's case. Residents of Roswell were obviously pissed, and several of them began writing letters to politicians to demand that Clark's bond be rescinded. Why they let him out at all is just... What the fuck? On July 16th, 1986, Clark drove to Artesia, New Mexico and kidnapped nine-year-old Dina Lynn Gore. He worked on a ranch at the time, which is where he took the little girl before he forcefully penetrated her. Dina was fucking brave. Broke my heart, honestly. She told him, You're going to pay for this." Clark responded by shooting her in the head three times. Her body was found, bound and decomposed in a shallow grave on the ranch. It's rare that anything good comes out of a case like this. It's honestly weird to even say that. Cases like this one often bring about changes to laws or bring new laws. Think back to New Jersey and Megan's law. On the day of Dina's funeral, the local women who had been writing letters to get Clark's bond rescinded staged a rally in front of the Roswell Courthouse. They were calling for a change to the appellate bond law that had given Clark the opportunity to attack again. People flocked from all over New Mexico to come sign the petition, which gathered well over 20,000 signatures. Dina's mother also eventually joined up with the women to lobby legislators to change the law. Another woman named Jean Ortiz joined up with the group to help fight for change. And that's where things get fucking weird. So, okay. I've probably mentioned this before a couple of times because it's relevant. I once wrote to a prisoner. I don't know what exactly compelled me to do it, but I heard a sword and scale and decided to just shoot my shot. He was on death row in Florida. Still is, if I remember correctly. I never heard back from him, but I did get a letter back from a different prisoner, who I corresponded with for a few months. I was not looking for love, I was lonely, my ex was neglecting the fuck out of me, and I figured a pen pal would get me in less trouble than some real people from my past. Dumb logic, but still. Some women think they'll find love in a prisoner. Maybe fix him. Remember the Colorado episode? The fuck was that guy's name? Uh, Gary Davis. He met the woman he'd later go on to murder someone with while he was in prison. It's gross, it's not a good idea. I look back on the friendship I had with a convicted murderer, and I am just appalled with myself. Jean Ortiz, though. This woman deserves a swift kick in the head for the shit she pulled. Years after Dina's murder, the women advocating for a change to the law learned that Clark had gotten engaged to Jean Ortiz. This woman knew all the terrible shit he'd done to young girls over the years, and still decided to get with him. According to Ortiz, she had written him a letter to ask why he wasn't dead yet, and what he responded with changed her mind about him. Prisoners have a way with words. They kinda have to. Letters are all they've really got. Why this woman allowed herself to get sucked into it is a mystery to me. Terry Doug Clark was executed by lethal injection on November 6, 2001. He was the first person to get a three drug cocktail in the state of New Mexico, the first to be executed in 41 years, and the last to be put down before they abolished capital punishment. He fought his attorneys when they tried to appeal his death sentence. Eventually he was found competent and given his wish. Pedophiles should get the death penalty on the first offense, not $50,000 bond and a make sure you come to your next hearing. Rehabilitation and second chances do not fix these people. Three drug cocktails and bullets do. Clark invited Jean Ortiz to attend his execution, which she did, for some weird fucking reason. In February of 2000, he'd written a letter to a newspaper in which he stated, There is not a day that goes by that I don't suffer from extreme guilt. The shame of it is why I chose to die instead of having to live with that on my mind from day to day. Clark's last words were 15 minutes. This was allegedly in reference to a book called Dead Man Walking. Clark believed it would take him 15 minutes to get to heaven, but if you ask me, God hates pedophiles. Some people think he meant something to do with the 15 minutes of fame he'd get after his execution. It's kind of up for debate, but really, who actually cares? Clark's last meal was fish and shrimp from Long John Silver's. He also put in his request that he did not want dessert. Women get lighter sentences than men. It's a fact. I did a whole fucking episode on it. Though they're often more vicious, vindictive, and fucked up than men, they walk away with slaps on the wrist for crimes that would get men the needle. This next case is a great example of that. Wish I would have found this one for the Double Standard episode. Seriously. I can't find anything on the early life of Patricia Ignacio. She was born in 1987 and was a resident of Nagizi, New Mexico. There it is. The, uh, weird town name. Where the fuck even is this place? Oh, okay. Northwestern corner, kinda. Very small town. Population of less than 300. Looks like we've found New Mexico's cooter, haven't we? On November 25th, 2008, the body of a woman was found in an undeveloped area of Farmington. She'd been buried under some broken concrete and sand. The woman's name was Irene Armenta, and police had no idea what could have happened to her. After a Crime Stoppers tip came in, Patricia Ignacio became a person of interest. She had apparently been in an unrelated fight earlier that day. Strikes me as the type of woman every man wants, for real. Nothing like a violent drunk. Ignacio had attacked Irene after finding out that the woman might have been involved with her boyfriend. Alcohol was involved, obviously. A case like this, it usually is. Ignacio smashed Irene's head with a piece of concrete until she died then made a half-assed attempt to bury her and cover up what she'd done. Patricia Ignacio entered an Alford plea on the charge of second-degree murder and was sentenced to 15 years in prison. According to the inmate search I did, she has already been released on either parole or probation. Tell me again how women and men are treated equally in the justice system. Brianna Lopez, Omari Varela, Victoria Martins. Sword and Scale has covered a handful of cases from New Mexico that have absolutely broken my already severely damaged heart. That's why when I started the research for this episode, I was very surprised by how long the death penalty has been abolished here. Episode 78 of Sword and Scale covers two absolutely fucking horrific child abuse cases, one of which I knew about long before I even knew what a podcast was. I will spare you the horrors of that episode, as Mike does it way more justice than I ever could, but it is worth a listen if you want to cry yourself to sleep tonight. I've instead decided to cover some other cases that unfortunately don't end in the death penalty, though they probably should. I haven't told y'all my story yet. I've hinted at it in the past, probably teased the fuck out of you sick bastards who live for drama and details, but I've never told you about the worst day of my life. Maybe one day I will. It's a fucked up story. Carrie Ann Santos had a day very similar to mine back in January of this year. Worse than mine by far, but still very similar. Hard to believe that crimes like this still occur in 2024. Albuquerque police responded to the University of New Mexico Hospital on January 13, 2024, after receiving a call about a child who was deceased upon arrival. Officers made contact with the little girl's mother, Carrie Ann Santos, who told them that she had traveled from Massachusetts to get away from a bad situation. While in New Mexico, her three-year-old daughter had started feeling sick, so the woman took her to the hospital. I'm gonna cut in here and say this case is really difficult for me to write. I've been choking down some tears. I think my mild case of PTSD is showing itself. Having been grilled in the hospital by the cops, I can understand what this woman went through. The difference, though, is that I didn't cause any harm to my child. Oh shit, spoiler alert. What the doctors found when the little girl, known only as LS, was brought into the hospital was nothing short of heartbreaking. She had bruising all over her body, on her wrists, behind her ears, around her hips, and also ligature marks around her ankles. She was three, in case you forgot. I've said a hundred times before, my son is almost three. And he's always got little bumps and bruises because he's a ball of energy and climbs all over the house. It happens. Ligature marks do not happen by running and jumping and being a crackhead toddler. Santos brought her daughter into the hospital, wrapped in a blanket. When the doctors tried to move the blanket to check her, Santos flipped out and asked why they needed to do that. Red flag number one. After the hospital staff took the little girl away from her mother, they got her into another room and realized that she'd already passed away. Santos tried to say that LS had been sick and had fallen off a rest stop toilet. That's a hell of a story, ain't it? I mean, who hasn't fallen off a toilet in a rest stop? Happens all the fucking time. This story didn't sit right with the cops and they reached out to the police in Gardner, Massachusetts for any extra information they might have. This led to the discovery of many domestic violence reports as well as a DCFS investigation revolving around Santos using drugs around her kids A stellar mother, for sure. Deserves an award. Santos left her home state of North Carolina and fled to Massachusetts to escape an abusive relationship. She stayed with her aunt and uncle in Gardner until they became verbally abusive, and she fled Massachusetts. She had no destination in mind, just packed her kids in the car and ran. Which is just... Fucking stupid. I've thought about running off away from this desert wasteland a million times. The only thing stopping me is my job. But if I did, I wouldn't just drive aimlessly. I'd go north. Not sure which coast yet, but one thing at a time. To make this case even more fucked up than it already is, the little girl's six-year-old sister disclosed to the police that one of the four adults charged in connection with this crime would tie LS's hands and ankles with shoelaces. The six-year-old also said that neighbors would molest her, LS, and their six-month-old sibling while their mother was present. Normally, I'd say throw her in the fucking gulag, but I think a wood chipper would be better. The six-year-old and the six-month-old have been placed into the custody of the New Mexico Children, Youth, and Families Department. Hopefully, they don't fuck this case up. Carrie ann Santos is not currently listed as an inmate in the New Mexico Department of Corrections System. I'm not even joking. She is not in there. This case is from a month ago. None of the other people who were charged are in there either. What the fuck, Colorado? Oh shit, sorry, wrong state. New Mexico is famous for dropping the ball in child abuse cases, What pisses me off even more with this one is that none of them are facing murder charges or even manslaughter. They've all been charged with child abuse, a third-degree felony, and Santos is also looking at tampering with evidence. A three-year-old little girl is dead at the hands of the adults in her life. I decided to look because I was curious. Voluntary manslaughter is a third-degree felony in New Mexico and carries a sentence of six years, six fucking years. Are you angry yet? I get off on mind games. After we get completely through with you, you're gonna be drugged up real heavy with a combination of sodium pentothal and phenobarbital. They are both hypnotic drugs that will make you extremely susceptible to hypnosis, auto-hypnosis, and hypnotic suggestion. You're gonna be kept drugged a couple of days while I play with your mind. By the time I get through brainwashing you, you're not gonna remember a fucking thing about this little adventure. I can't believe I made it through this entire episode without covering the one serial killer who actually bothered me. The one who gave me anxiety so bad I wouldn't leave the house for a day after I heard the case. You've probably heard of this guy. I first read this case after a long night of drinking, Woke up anxious because you know drank anxiety. Researched some serial killers like I do. Wouldn't leave the house after that. I stayed in bed and freaked the fuck out. I'm gonna spoil it for you. He didn't get the death penalty. Deserved the fuck out of it, but you know, blue state full of bleeding hearts. His sentence was reminiscent of the Alaskan Ted Kaczynski. That's a fucking callback. It's a March afternoon and you're driving down the highway. All that's around you is vast, empty desert. Maybe a cactus or two, maybe some tumbleweeds, typical New Mexico landscape. You suddenly notice a bloody, naked woman running down the road with a metal collar padlocked around her neck and a chain flapping in the breeze behind her. Do you stop? Do you offer aid to this obviously distraught person? Or do you lock your car doors and speed away? I can't even imagine what poor Cynthia must have felt when her only savior sped away and left her for dead on the side of the road. Must have been even worse when it happened a second time. Cynthia ran past a handful of rundown trailers and other houses before coming across one that looked well-maintained. She ran inside without even knocking, fearing that her captors were behind her. After slamming the door, Cynthia asked the woman who lived in the trailer to help her. When the police arrived, she screamed, I'm alive, I'm alive, probably in total shock. She'd stared death in the face and somehow managed to get away. The tale she told was nightmare-inducing. It was a horrific endeavor that many had gone through before her but failed to survive. Cynthia had been kidnapped by a couple and held in a trailer in the resort town of Elephant Butte. New Mexico really is full of them weird town names, isn't it? For three days, she was kept restrained and tortured with all kinds of things. If you've ever seen any of the hostile movies, that should give you an idea. After her male captor left on the third day of her captivity, the female was left in charge. Cynthia waited until she left the room for a minute before grabbing the keys to her chains and setting herself free. There was a phone within reach, and she attempted to call 911, but the woman returned and threw a lamp at her. Probably not with the intention to tell Cynthia to lighten the fuck up. Sorry, couldn't help myself. The lamp struck Cynthia in the head and knocked her down, but she was able to recover pretty quickly. A box of items that had been used to torture this poor woman spilled onto the floor, and Cynthia grabbed an ice pick to defend herself. Her female captor backed off, and she fled out the door as fast as she could. Without a second thought or even a glance behind her, Cynthia took off into the desert in search of safety. Police were already on their way to the trailer that stood at 513 Bass Road because a 911 call had come from there but was cut off before they could determine what the issue was. The story Cynthia told was nothing short of horrifying. At the hospital, she was found to have welts on her back, cuts, bruises, puncture wounds, and a bump on her head from where the lamp had hit her. She was in rough shape. She recounted that she'd met her abductor while she was working the streets in Albuquerque. He'd offer her $20 for a blowjob, and she climbed into his truck. This is when she noticed the man's girlfriend and her get-the-fuck-out-of-here sense started to kick in. The man flashed a badge at her and told her she was under arrest for solicitation. This badge was obviously fake, and Cynthia realized that as soon as the couple began restraining her with duct tape. When they arrived back at the trailer belonging to David Parker Ray and Cindy Lee Hendy, a 20-minute tape was played that explained what would be happening to Cynthia. She was their sex slave now. She was going to be tortured and abused in ways that give freak monkeys like me nightmares. That's saying something she'd be forcibly raped with various objects, forced to have sex with animals, and be required to perform oral sex as frequently as Ray wanted. Cynthia was also informed that other women before her had died. She was hung from the ceiling, threatened with a gun, hooked up to electrical currents and other medical devices. Ray raped her repeatedly, also told her that they had a more secure room where they kept the extreme torture devices and that she'd be going there soon. Cynthia knew if she went in that room, she wouldn't be coming out alive. When police searched the trailer on Bass Road, they found all kinds of terrifying shit. Next to a gynecology chair, which Ray used to restrain his victims, a TV sat on a shelf with a video camera hooked up to it. This was so that the women could watch as they were being tortured. Medical manuals relating to the female anatomy were also found along with syringes and an electrical device. Large dildos, whips, and belts were kept in the toy box as well. The whole room was rigged up with pulleys and chains and other means of keeping women restrained. Sounds like heaven to some, but it was actually hell. Part of what makes this man so much worse than a lot of the other ones is how well he understood psychology. He wanted to keep his victims off-balance and not let them think too much about what was going on. He was a very verbal person and used threats with everything he did. Ray kept a list of different tactics to use to keep a slave compliant. Small favors, isolation, abuse. He was a sick fuck, definitely, but not a dumb man by any means. Ray and Hendy were arrested while trying to flee from the trailer after Cynthia got away. Both were charged with kidnapping, conspiracy, and aggravated battery, as well as a few other things. Their bail was set at one million each. If you're not well-versed in true crime, bail this high is usually reserved for people who have been accused of murder. Though Ray had made it clear in his videotapes that he had actually killed before, police didn't have any bodies yet. What they found in that trailer though, Goddamn, the stuff of nightmares. And that's coming from somebody who's voluntarily worn a collar a time or two in her life. Maybe that's why this case bothers me so much. Consent is key and all that. Uh, Another odd detail about this psychopath is that he claimed to be affiliated with the Church of Satan. Ray claimed that his slaves weren't just kept for himself, but also for the other members of his congregation. Believe it or not, Cynthia's story was not seen as entirely credible. Despite finding videos and pictures of another woman being tortured, police couldn't say for sure that anything had been non-consensual. Cynthia was a prostitute, which made her an uncredible witness. They wanted to find this other victim and use her testimony to help corroborate Cynthia's story. Another woman named Angelica eventually came forward to report that she'd also been attacked by the couple about a month earlier. She wasn't a prostitute. She actually knew Ray and Hendy. She'd gone to their house on February 17th of 1999 to get some cake mix and then was held at knife point. Angelica was held for three days and subjected to the same horrors as Cynthia before being moved to the smaller room and hooked up to electrical currents. By the grace of someone's God, she was let go. She actually convinced them to release her. Angelica reported what had happened to the police, but, uh, this is New Mexico. They never followed up. I could do an entire episode about this case and the fucked up details of it. Maybe I will one day. But what needs to be said is that Ray had upwards of 60 victims. The actual number is unknown, but two of his victims came to testify at his trial. A third victim also landed him some charges in 1999. Two other people would be charged in connection to these crimes. Cindy Lee Hendy, obviously, and Jesse Ray, his daughter. Yep he enlisted his daughter to help him kidnap women so he could rape and torture them. What a fucking class act. Glenda Jean Jesse Ray pled no contest to her charges and was sentenced to two and a half years behind bars plus five years probation for kidnapping and criminal sexual penetration. I would imagine she's still alive out walking the streets of New Mexico. Cindy Lee Hendy was convicted in 2000 and sentenced to 36 years in prison for her role in the crimes. She was given parole in 2017 and served two years of that behind bars before being released on July 15, 2019. This woman is also out walking the streets of New Mexico. David Parker Ray died of a heart attack on May 28, 2002. He served just three years behind bars after taking a plea deal and being sentenced to a grand total of 224 years. Bullets are fucking cheaper. That's all I'm going to say on that. Ray died while being moved from one prison to another. He was supposed to be interrogated again, but they never got the chance. If you ask me, he deserved to be strapped into a gynecology chair and subjected to the same shit he did to those women. Whether it was just Angelica and Cynthia, or if there were others. There had to be others. There's no fucking way there were only two of them. One good thing came out of this, and that was that Cynthia Vigil later founded a harm reduction organization called Street Safe New Mexico to help sex workers and other vulnerable people in the area. Jesus Christ, that was a long one. I stand by my opinion that I've shared a hundred times already. New Mexico fucking sucks. I haven't found a single redeeming quality and I hope I never have to drive through it again. Some of the worst crimes I've heard of have taken place here and the lovely Mike Boudet has covered them. They definitely give Wisconsin a run for their money. If you enjoyed this episode, weave some tumbleweeds together into a review and leave it on the side of Route 66. Seriously though, tell a friend. Word of mouth goes a long way. You can get me on Instagram and Twitter at Last Meal Pod. I stream on Rumble on Thursday or Friday nights. Don't tell me to stick to a schedule. I'm a fucking mess. But I'll be back next week with an episode about another East Coast urban hellscape. Until then, don't get into cars with strangers in New Mexico. You might end up in a toy box. Cursed is the man who dies, but the evil done by him survives. See you next time.